All right, welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. My name is Ben Wager, and with me is my co-host, Don Gibson, and today we're looking at movies from 1978. And remember, this series, we're looking at movies that are nominated for Best Picture in either the Oscars or the Golden Globes, but they didn't win. So that's uh, kind of how our criteria were, uh, was selected for these types of movies. And today we're going to start off with uh, the movie I selected it, and it's called Days of Heaven. Uh, it was released in 1978. However, it was actually filmed in 1976, which um, we will explain a little bit later. It was written and directed by uh, the uh, Terrence Malick, produced by Burt Schneider, and starring Richard Gere, Brooke Adams, Sam Shepard, and Lin Linda Manns. And also, Linda Manns was a child actress at the time. And she also was the narrator for the film. And we'll talk a little bit about what that meant. Uh, the music was done by uh, Ennio Morricone. And uh, the cinematography uh, started off with uh, Nestor Almendros, but then finished off with Haskell Wexler. Although uh, Nestor got the, uh, actually won the award for cinematography for this film. And uh, he did thank Haskell, but he, Haskell did not receive the, any credit for this, except as an additional photographer. So uh, the movie is a, it's a very powerful, visually speaking, the imagery in this movie is just stunning. It's considered a classic when it comes to um, uh, talking about imagery in movies because, uh, and you know, in my amateur eye right away, I could, I could tell you that I was very impressed with the imagery in this movie. Some of the shots that I thought were amazing, uh, the, the train ride through the plains uh, was, it was stunning the way they, they, uh, they filmed that. Um, there was some amazing photography on the plains and how they shot the, the ranch where the, much of the film was kind of based off of a, a rancher in Texas, a uh, farmer rancher. And to just tell you a little bit about this movie, it's a period piece set around uh, the early uh, 1900s, where um, a young man and his sister, uh, his young sister, and his uh, girlfriend are uh, raised in Chicago, living a very difficult life. And he's working at a steel foundry, I believe, um, and producing products for steel. And he gets in a dispute with his uh, supervisor, and he ends up uh, beating him, killing him, I guess. And then he has to flee the factory and flee Chicago. And so him and his little sister and his girlfriend, they, they hop a train and they, and they end up uh, uh, kind of working as seasonal workers in Texas, uh, uh, recruited by a, a kind of a wealthy rancher farmer uh, who's single, uh, played by Sam Shepard. And their experiences on that uh, farm is very well portrayed too. I mean, seeing the seasonal workers and, and the old machines that they used that they still had functioning and um, the production of this film, as we will later learn that we talk about that a little bit later is, was a complete nightmare. You know, half those machines weren't working, but um, we see them go through this process of uh, working uh, through the season, harvesting the wheat or um, the grain or whatever the product that farmer was um, growing. And um, we start to see the complications of the relationships between um, the owner, the, the, the farm owner, uh, and the, he notices the beauty of, of, the, of the girl, uh, the girlfriend, 
And they actually uh, kind of hid their relationship to the other seasonal workers by saying that they were brother and sister. Although some people seeing that there was a little bit of intimacy between them, suspecting, including one of the um, supervisor farmhands who was like the number two guy to the owner, he kind of said, you know, I can see that there's, you know, you guys are not what you say you are. But we end up seeing that the, um, the, the farm owner falls in love with the, um, the, the girlfriend slash sister and then uh, ends up marrying her. But he supposedly has this illness that he could die within a year. And the, and the brother had found out about that uh, by eavesdropping on a doctor's visit or something. And so he had actually pushed her to kind of get in a relationship with him to try and be the heir to the, when he died. And so the, he thought it was a temporary thing. So she marries the guy reluctantly, not happy with the situation. And the whole film is actually being narrated by the little sister who's, you know, uh, pre-pubescent, adult, you know, adolescent kind of turning. And she uh, is telling the story. And, and the interesting thing is Terrence Malick, as a director, the decision to have this little girl narrated didn't happen until in post-production of the movie. And, and the way that they decided to do it was it, to create an authentic sense. They had her watch the movie and then she ad-libbed her narration. And so the, the effectiveness on this was very good in the authenticity of the way she spoke during the narration. It, it was very authentic and I was very impressed with it. And overall, I would say that the movie in itself, because it's a very, it, it, it's not a happy ending. It's a, a kind of a dark ending, um, which is very unsatisfying. Overall, the movie itself is a, it, it's definitely a masterpiece. And I can see why people consider it to be a classic movie because it does stand up even now watching it, you know, 40 years later or whatever. But I will say that um, the, the enjoyment that I had of the movie was definitely the technical aspects of it, but I wasn't as impressed with the storyline or the, the connections in the storyline, but the imagery really, you know, at the moment that you're watching the film, you don't, the imagery makes up for it, but you do find that there is a little bit of a, uh, a lack of, of depth to the story. And some people argue that, you know, that was intentional based on the adding that narration because you're seeing it all through the, the eyes of this 11 or 12 year old who doesn't really care about these people's relationships. She's just making the observations about the relationship. So, you know, I could see how they could use that as an argument, but overall the imagery outweighs the depth of the story by quite a bit. And I think, uh, Don, if you want to kind of come in here before we start talking about the production, maybe you could give us a little bit of feedback too on what you felt about the storyline and the imagery. Yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, it's actually pretty uh, weak in terms of a narrative. Uh, I'd say even the quality of the girl's voice is a little bit, it's not the most enjoyable sound. She's, she's got an okay voice, but it's kind of gravelly. and. Oh yeah, she's a strange kid, I thought. Yeah, it's not, It's a, I, I think it's, it's a really odd decision. It's, it certainly doesn't bring people into the story. And as you said, her understanding of what's happening is very limited because she is a young girl and she doesn't, I mean, Richard Deere, who's, you know, this very attractive man and, you know, he's, you know, he's like a, he was a, a, a you know, an icon in the seventies and then, and, you know, he's beautiful to look at, but he's a really kind of questionable, despicable character that just kind of He's a he's a free spirit, but he's running around and and he's as you say he he pushes his his love 
into getting into a, a relationship with a guy because he thinks she's he's dying and um just to take his land and his house and uh, it's like that's so it's really hard to relate to the guy as a character um but in the story i'll kind of meanders all over the place but those shots of, of them you know he and his girlfriend just walking through the fields in the evening um absolutely beautiful cinematography uh you know the images are just uh, astonishing and you talk about how the the production turned into a nightmare i mean basically you know, uh, Malik was was telling his DOP, uh, we're only going to shoot from like, you know, 4.30 to 6. The magic the hours. They call magic it the magic hour. hour. And, and, and the, the colors are just, I, the, the shots, the train crossing, and everyone riding the train. It's absolutely beautiful and vivid and astonishing. But basically, he was limiting his, his, his crew, only could really work for about an hour and a half, two hours a day. And then that was it. And then the rest of the time, you know, in the prairies, when it's the sun's high in the sky, it's just not very, it's really visually not very strong. And so a lot of people weren't doing anything. And the budget just went way beyond in terms of time. And that the reason they had to switch cinematographers is the, the other guy had a commitment. So Wexler had to come in to cover for the guy because he had to go because the thing went, I don't know what it went, several weeks over. Oh, it shot, they shot that for over a year. Yeah. And uh, as you said, in the, the production, you know, since they were trying to really use low light, it was kind of a homage to silent movie style yeah. productions. And so it really limited and they didn't plan very well either. So the, you know, the yeah. drove the crew nuts. Many crew members quit in frustration or, or moved on to other commitments. And uh, as you said, it went over budget $800,000, which, you know, part of the sale to Paramount by Bert Schneider, the producer was, you know, I want control of this. And they said, fine, then you're responsible for all overall costs. We're not covering anything. And so he had to mortgage his house to cover the, the 800 grand. Uh, and, the, and the movie was a flop. I mean, um, commercially, it, uh, I think it cost 3 million and they made 3.4. So he, he, you know, he's out of pocket at least 400 grand. Well, and it's, it's, it's fascinating too, because Terrence Malick is considered one of the great auteurs of the last 40 years, uh, an American, and he's really never made a successful film, but I guess you could say the same about Kubrick. Kubrick had some success, but Kubrick really never won any major awards. Uh, you know, maybe commercially successful, maybe he was I not, mean commercially I mean, successful. Yeah, yeah, but I mean like the thin red line is considered a, a very powerful yeah, movie as well. It, it's really powerful, but it, 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 it just did okay. Like that's the yeah. same year that uh, Saving Private Ryan came out and Saving Private Ryan did remarkably well everyone when you say say Terrence Malick it, actors just want to work for him and, and he's he makes these beautiful poetic films Badlands he made like four or five years before Days of Heaven and it's this beautiful poetic film but it didn't do very well this didn't do very well they took a 20 year break because he was just so burned out yeah. from the process I think yeah and then he did that and then he did Tree of Life Tree of Life I think did pretty well that it had Brad Pitt and Sean Penn I think was in it and it did pretty well because everyone had constantly been talking about you know what a great filmmaker he was and it was this beautiful film but once again his stories he's known for these stories that just kind of drift all over the place and the camera's always sweeping and fluid and i remember when i saw thin red line i love the film it's beautiful um and there's people in front of me came and they they expect they wanted to see saving private ryan and they left halfway through they're just like what the hell is this because it was a poetic look of what it's yeah, like to yeah. be in war, and it's not like Saving Private Ryan, where it's a really clear storyline of saving this guy and all these battle sequences, developing these characters. Malik doesn't really develop his characters. They just kind of, you know, 
like Sam Shepard, as you say, the, the man who owns the farm is a pretty interesting character, but he's really not developed. He just is sort of this guy that's on his own and he, and he kind of becomes infatuated. That, it was very open-ended. He encouraged improvisation constantly. Yep. Uh, you know, he, it just was, it, you know, there wasn't a lot of pre-production development in regards no. to the, no. the direction or the characters. And, you know, and I think maybe that's very connected to his style. Um, oh, interestingly enough, you know, when they cast this, uh, their first choice was John Travolta, which, you know, he was very much connected to Welcome Back, Cotter. Yep. And they wouldn't, the television people wouldn't release him to make the movie. And uh, and one of the people who had auditioned with him, who they liked a lot, was Carrie Fisher. And Carrie Fisher was up for the Brooke Adams role as the girlfriend. And uh, they liked her a lot too. But then when Travolta wasn't available and they brought in and, and cast Richard Gere, she had no chemistry with Fish, with uh, with Richard Gere. And so they kind of moved moved away from her and she, she didn't get the role. Uh, and so that, you know, that opened it up for Brooke Adams. Yeah. So it was uh, interesting. It could have been a very different uh, cast yeah. with, with a John Travolta, which I had a hard time telling you the truth, hard time imagining him in that yeah. role. But Well, interestingly, John Travolta got a role as like a sergeant, uh, more than that, like a higher up uh, military figure in Thin Red Line. And he was this sort of, you know, guy that was in charge and, and he walked around, but it's a very different role than what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, overall, you know, I, I enjoyed the movie. I was disappointed with like the story, as I as I mentioned, but uh, I'm happy I saw the movie and I could see that it had the immense value of the visualization of this, the imagery and the, it's such yeah. a powerful powerful movie. But the story is just very black. I uh, it, it made me think about how you know I haven't seen Thin Red Line since it came out, so it made me kind of think maybe I'll, I'll give that a shot as well. So we'll have to see. And so they're very creative in, in those shots. And the one shot that lots of people talk about is, is the, you know, the, the uh, fields are in, infested with uh, locusts. There's a big locust yeah. uh, swarm that comes in and then they, they try to burn the fields to get rid of the locusts and the fire gets out of control. But it was really interesting how they shot that scene because, you know, they didn't have locusts. And so they dropped peanuts from helicopters. Yeah, the peanut shells, peanut shells. Peanut shells. And then, and then they filmed it backwards, peanut shells, right? Because they go much slower. And um, they filmed it back. They, and so they had all the actor characters walking backwards. And so it looks like it's locusts flying up and they're hitting them uh, with branches, you know, to get them out of the crops. But it's really just all shot backwards. And, you know, if you don't know that, it's a very convincing portrayal of what it looks like when a locust swarm descends on your crops and it's and it's it's all shot in the magic hour and then into night and so then the fields are on fire and it's just incredible silhouettes with you know the flames in the sky and the darkness and and yeah and then that like figures. that old tractor bursting through the flames yeah and that yeah. and that actually that tractor was driven by Terrence Malick and that's it and that's, that's true. Yeah. And uh, one of the other things, I, uh, one of the reasons it went overboard was he had no respect for any, those helicopters were incredibly expensive to, to yeah, have on set. And he, he didn't even, you know, he didn't prioritize the shooting for that because he wanted to finish this other shot, uh, yeah. you know, and so they, they were just sitting around costing money. Yeah. And uh, for the day, and then he'd say, "I can't use them today." It's like, but you pay for them, so well, I'm using them tomorrow. It's like, yeah, yeah. So you know, I, you know, and you know, I'm sure Bert Schneider's like, "Oh, my house, my house." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the so, other thing they did was the construction of that house, the farmhouse. It's something they built for the set, and it's this house that's just in the middle of the prairies on a little hill, and it's 
just beautifully constructed. And they shot that constantly at the Magic Hour because it was so easy to do. And uh, it's a beautiful and it's thing. it's a real house. It's not just a front. I mean, they built no, no, they the built house, the interiors, everything is all, that's yeah. all authentic, you know? It's beautiful, yeah. Yeah, and that was actually shot in Canada. It was in Alberta. Yeah. Yep. So uh, little little connection. The park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheaper. 60 yeah. cents a dollar. So... But uh, yeah, good. It's a good film. Um, you know, it's. I, I would say that it's not a perfect film, but it's a good film, and I can see why even now people look back and, and put it on their list of great films. Yeah. Well, as you said, the images absolutely gorgeous. Uh, narrative. Don't be looking for a story that's going to rivet you. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 One All thing right. I do want to add is an interest. The ending, the last scene of Richard Gere, he he drowns. And they, uh, well, um, I think he's shot in the back. He but, shot, well, he shot in the back, but there's a scene of him, his face going into the river, yeah. and they never got it properly. And Malik really wanted a shot of him coming to the river. So they actually shot that in a studio of his face coming to the river, and it's a shot from underneath in the water. Um, and when you, when you know that and you see it, it looks kind of weird because the water quality is much too clear for what you'd think a river would be. But it was in the studio, it was somebody's house and it was in their aquarium. I think it was yeah. Sissy Spacek or somebody's. Very weird yeah. thing. And I was like, why'd you put that in there? You didn't really need it, but Malik wanted that shot. So he put it in there. Yeah. yeah. And then I think they reshot some of Sam Shepard scenes too, under a highway overpass in LA or something. Yeah. You know, to get yeah. a certain look. So, you know, yeah, definitely some weird stuff going on. But I mean, like yeah. I said, it worked. So let's move on to our next film, yeah. uh, which is, in, in my opinion, um, if you hadn't picked that film, I would have picked it. But oh, you, I'm sorry. You picked first. Uh, so picked go first. ahead and introduce your film. Yeah, well, we're, we're, we're doing the Heaven series. For the other yeah, film it's a theme. It's a theme. Is, uh, Heaven Can Wait. And basically entirely different. Uh, then there's no real connection except for that heaven is in the title. I guess there's themes of immortality and enjoying life and things like that. But in terms of style, uh, so Heaven Can Wait is uh, basically a romantic comedy, I guess you could call it. Lots of people, lots of reviewers call it a screwball comedy, which was a real uh, genre in the 30s and 40s, like Cary Grant, Kate Hepburn kind of movies, Bringing Up Baby. And this is kind of this there's, you don't really, you don't take the story too, too seriously and all these crazy screwball things are happening. So it's a, it's a comedy and it's all about getting, looking for the funny scenes. Um, so it was, it's another Warren Beatty production. When our first uh, uh, podcast, we talked about when Warren Beatty really started to become power, powerful in Hollywood, 10 years, 11 years previous, <clears throat> when he basically produced uh, Bonnie and Clyde. And he is the director starred and uh one of the writers for this film heaven can heaven can wait yeah, um, i think he was nominated for four different uh parts yeah. of this movie so he was nominated for everything one nothing and then two three years later uh he made reds and then he was nominated for loads of things and that he won quite a bit that that time yeah. but this time he was shut out but he had an incredible and uh, and that's pretty a great accomplishment for a comedy because generally hollywood doesn't look they look much more, and uh, Days of Heaven, it was nominated for three or four at one cinematography. Um, and I people think it was think, nominated for Best Sound uh, as well. Sound. Yeah, score. And, and people think of Days of Heaven as being much more of a film and Heaven Can Wait being more of a movie, you know, it's just for fun. And, you know, cinematography, this thing was actually nominated for cinematography as well. It's beautifully shot, but it's not poetic or anything. Like they have these shots, the story is, um, is uh, Warren Beatty plays a character 
that is a star quarterback for the Los Angeles Rams. And he's training and doing really well and playing and he's rehabbing his knees. And he, he takes his bicycle down a tunnel and the angel, he's, he's gonna be hit by a truck and the angel pulls him out of the body uh, before um, there's impact because he doesn't want him to suffer. And little did he know that because Warren Beatty's character was so, uh, I said great reactions, he would have swerved around, missed the bus, uh, missed the truck. And um, so he did, it wasn't his time to die. And so when he goes up to heaven, the guy in charge, Mr. Jordan says, you took him out too early, you idiot, you gotta go back. And so those shots in heaven aren't like amazing, but they're pretty awesome. They're just like clouds. There's a nice white plane and it's pretty, it's a good. They, they had a Concorde. They had a Concorde airplane. Yeah, they had a Concorde. Like, that's yeah. a good thing. Good thing those days, I guess. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting because they state that, you know, this is only as you would imagine it. You know, that's hmm. kind of what they said. This this is, uh, you know, Warren Beatty's characters, what his imagination of, because they it wasn't heaven it was a way station where they way station, they, yeah. they kind of they transfer them to the plane that take the concord that takes yeah. them to heaven yeah and he and he's you know you get this vibe that he he doesn't think he's supposed to be there from the very start he's like oh this is a oh, dream yeah. and he's like doing push-ups and jogging and he, yeah and, and he's not cooperating with his his attendant not uh, who's buck henry played very well yeah. buck henry uh yeah. kind of this nerdy bureaucratic attendant guy and then, um, and then the, the supervisor, Mr. Jordan, has to uh, come, and and he's amazing. James Mason plays him, and um, interestingly enough, the original choice for that was Cary Grant, and it was a big push to get him out of retirement. Including, I think uh, Diane Cannon was married to him, and they tried to get her to convince him to come out, and he just would He was like, "No, I'm not interested." But I thought James Mason was yeah. phenomenal in that well, role. You you uh, you raise all these people, you know, Diane Cannon, James Mason, Buck Henry. And then Charles Grodin. Charles Grodin, yeah, Charles Grodin in this was fantastic. He was my, I thought he made this movie. I was yeah. surprised he didn't get nominated for it. And, and Jack Warden. And those five actors are all supporting. Yeah. They make the film. Like yeah. Warren Beatty is a really likable, you know, attractive, nice looking guy. And he's totally likable in the film, but he's, he's just, that's all he is. And Julie Christie is, is the love interest and she's lovely. She's a little bit strident. She's always, you know, saying the right thing, and but she's well, very. She, she's an environmental activist. Yeah, right? and but she's lovely, and it, they definitely they do the old soft focus thing on her where they zoom oh, yeah. in with the they, eyes, the real, the, eyes. the, real, the lighting of the eyes. Yeah, but the but this film is is made by Buck Henry is a really funny character actor as the uh, as the uh, the angel, and then I think Charles Grodin and Diane Canton. So Charles Grodin, so. Warren Beatty gets in his body when they realize all this stuff's happened. They go back and there's a great funny scene when they go to the cemetery and he finds out his body's been cremated. And so he can't go back to his body. And so the whole joke is, let's find you a body. There's a pretty funny montage sequences of people that are just gonna take the body up. <clears throat> and then we end up with this guy named Farnsworth, who's a really rich guy and he's an ass and uh, he's been killed poisoned by his wife and his personal secretary. And that's who Diane Cannon and Charles Grodin are. And they are hilarious when, when so when he, he's supposed to be dead and they've left him dead and now they're wandering around trying to make everything safe in the mansion, pretend that everything's Set, fine. Setting up their alibi. Setting up their alibi. And then when he just shows up and says hello, their reactions are just, they're just so great. Her, she screams and then he's like trying to deal with it and freaking out and then they go out into a, yeah. a garden and they're like 
he's holding her hand, his hand over his mouth. Her mouth, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very. He, he's like he comes back thing. in after she screams. He comes back in and goes, "I'm sorry, uh, you know, she saw a mouse." Yeah, and, a while ago, and, 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 <laughs> but not now. It was a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and but his like Charles Grodin is a great. Oh, he's so dry. His, 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 his delivery is just wonderful. I just enjoy delivery him so is just great. And Diane Cannon, I don't really know what else she's done. I think she did some soap kind of films, but and she's got this great Farrah Fawcett hair. It's all oh yeah, yeah. She's got the classic beauty look. You yeah, know, and she's just—I don't really know anything. But in this film, she's just like the greatest yeah. character actor, Rich trophy wife. You know. Yeah, she's just so funny, and you know, there's just funny little scenes where you know, and then he, you know, Warren Beatty, who's this nice, friendly guy, every time he passes through the hall, he's like, "Hey, how you doing?" And then she'll just drop. She'll be dress, dr drinking some sort of. Oh, she's got all these funny scenes where she's constantly yeah. drinking. She's to, trying to control her alcoholism. Yeah, and then she just drops her glass and it's frozen and yeah. he's like, okay, see you later. And, and that kind of stuff, if you don't do it well, is just kind of throwaway. Yeah. And it's remarkably well done. So this and also, you know, adding to that, the staff in the in the house were oh, yeah. very, what a wonderful way they were written as well. Fisk very good. and the staff, they were they were just a, a great contribution to the movie, the way they their interactions between themselves and then, you know, because, uh, you know, he's constantly talking to these angels that nobody else can see and he's not very careful about it and so no. you know he's let's go into this closet and then the, the servants are like just trying to go with the flow and he's talking in, to them he's talking in a closet by himself in the stairway yeah. and they're like should we bring him some uh, hot chocolate should i put two cups you know for the person that he's talking yeah. to, he thinks he's talking to and there's all these little there's yeah. all these little parts that uh, you know the the servants are dealing with how, how insane he seems and yeah. it's just done very well it's just and i thought that really added to the to the uh, enjoyment of of the plot lines that were happening with him as uh, the rich guy you know yeah and also the scene with jack warden uh when he so jack warden is his old sort of trainer coach with of, the, rams. the rams yeah yeah and so then uh warren Beatty as this new rich guy convinces him to come visit him. He doesn't know why. And then he explains to him, actually, I'm your old friend, uh, that I didn't die. I'm in this body. And this scene goes on for about five or six minutes. And it's all about him convincing Jack Warden it's really him. And it's so well done. And Jack Warden's reactions to realizing it's him and not, you know, understanding how is it possible because this is a different person. Jack Warden is just his delivery and his reaction shots. And then Warren Beatty leaves to get him a drink because he's kind of freaking out. And so then he starts talking to Mr. Jordan, the head angel. And of course, he's no longer there. And then he comes back, Warren Beatty comes back and says, well, who are you talking to? So I'm talking to your angel. He said, well, he's not there. Why, why are you talking to him? And just his reaction shots, because this stuff, if you don't do it well, can totally fall flat. And yeah. these scenes are so well done. Yeah, it, gives, it was the kind of thing where, even though I've seen this movie a couple of times, you still get that little tingle feeling you know when he's like oh he, he believes that it's him you know it's like this, yeah. you know that whole thing it just really gives you that sense i just enjoyed that you know where, when you have that feeling of oh man that's like yeah. he gets it you know and and uh it was done so well that you still even get that little tingly sense of, of, so of well joy done. you know so this this film is actually a remake of a 1941 film called here comes mr jordan and i'd never seen it so for the podcast i watched it and it's uh you know, a perfectly good film. It's got Claude Rains in it, and he's uh, one of the characters from Casablanca. Uh, Robert Montgomery plays the uh, the character Warren Beatty, and he's actually, I didn't know, but he's the father of Elizabeth Montgomery, the Bewitched star. Yeah. 
and um, it's and it's perfectly it's good. Uh, but and and a lot of the scenes are very similar. The difference is is that it's a boxer, and in this one we have a we have a quarterback. And when and it's it's a very well done film, but it, it's not as solid as Heaven Can Wait. Um, and it's interesting when Warren Beatty. So Warren Beatty is actually a pretty was a pretty smart Hollywood guy. He really figured out which films are marketable, and he'd look for good projects and figure it out. And when he originally conceived of this, he wanted Muhammad Ali to be the main character. And but Muhammad Ali, this is in, in the you know 77, 78, and you know he was fighting. But I, I got to say, I would be just fascinated to see if he'd actually pulled that off and got Ali to be in a film like this. But it never worked out. So then he switched the whole thing. Instead of being a, a boxing, a boxer, he changed it to a football player, and which makes it really confusing and challenging because suddenly, instead of one person, you have the massive team and the Super Bowl. There's an awful lot of issues they had to handle to make this story work. Yeah, um, but it was enjoyable. The story, you know, the football players, uh, you know, when they're, they're oh, yeah. smashing him down into the ground, going, "Oh, terribly sorry, Mr. Fontaine." You know, you know they, and a lot of those were former Rams. They were retired. Yeah, Rams. they were, they were former retirement. football players. And, yeah. and Deacon Jones was this Hall of Fame guy that uh, sure. played, and they had great fun. It's like, yeah, we'll use football players, and you can beat up Warren Beatty. Yeah, and uh, I think that they they had the game was the Rams Steelers. Uh, as a you know, the fictional Super Bowl, but the irony of it is like a year and a half later that the Rams actually played the Steelers in the Super Bowl. Yeah, and it was a great game. That was uh, Pr Terry Bradshaw against Vince Ferragamo. I remember it because I, I was a big Rams fan, and uh, Terry uh, was a John Stallworth, Lynn Swan. It was a uh, it was a damn good game, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so then later they remade this film uh, twenty years later with Chris Rock. And Chris Rock is the guy that same storyline. He he's he doesn't die, but it, you know, his, his body, et cetera. And he's a stand-up comedian. And um, and the film actually, one of the screenwriters is uh, what's his name, the Louis C.K., who we the the man we shall not utter, but I'm sure we can talk about it again eventually. Um, this film is just terrible. Uh, yeah. We watched it all the way through, and they actually there's scenes they're actually just literally just redoing the exact scene from heaven can wait and it looks like like seriously i could have put, done a better job than chris rock in some of these scenes it's just so badly done but this the weird saving grace of that film is that chris rock gets reincarnated or not whatever it goes into this other guy's body and it's an old white guy and so chris rock is doing his routine which is all you know living in the hood black humor and then they, sh and it's the only film they actually show not how we, not how, who the body is. We only see the actor. So we see this old white guy doing these jokes that are, in, especially today, insanely inappropriate. And the reaction shots, but there's just like four or five scenes like that. And the rest of the film is awful. And I think it's once again because the, the character actors, the character actors make Heaven Can Wait. Uh, just hilarious. I, yeah, I, we, yeah. When we got it, we rewatched it a number of times just to see those scenes a few times over. Yeah, they're great. It's a good movie. I really enjoyed the movie. The, the uh, uh, you know, the, the classic ending, the whole thing was just the, the timing, the way they, they kind of made the connections and yeah. um, it, the, you know, overall, I, I, and I, you know, I can't understate how, uh, overstate how much I enjoyed Charles Grodin in this movie. I really felt like right. he was the, the core supporting actor and he didn't even get nominated you know jack warden who was very good too but i really thought charles Grodin had just some amazing parts in that movie that were just so um so strong as a supporting character and really 
really yeah. impacted the flavor of of uh, the story. So yeah, well, I just say his dry delivery is just uh, it's great. Yeah, yeah, he's, um, he's a classic at that. Yeah, and funnily, I think these films are actually kind of serious. This film in Days of Heaven, in in one way, I would say neither story is that great. I mean, obviously, I think Heaven can wait. The story is much better, but. We don't really care. I mean, and there's all this sort of magical stuff and, you know, he has to get a new body again and it's all about this love into Julie Christie. And I don't even know if we really care in the end about them finding each other. It's all these really funny scenes. There's like four or five just excellent, really well constructed scenes. And that's what makes the film. And kind of like where Days of Heaven, it's those beautiful images that make the film. It's not just like this great story. The story's okay, but it's it's these funny scenes that were just so well put together yeah yeah so it's funny we picked two two movies that they had strengths in very opposite areas you know totally. yeah. yeah so that's a good but it's good i think it was a good uh process and we can see why they were both valued as nominations that year because they yep. in the strengths that they had they were very good and so you know it it does it does show that you know a film doesn't have to have the whole package to be looked at at that level and it you know and i think as we go through this process we're probably going to see that more and more i agree you know all right well i think we covered those very well and our next year is going to be 1979 where uh we're going to uh continue the series of uh best picture nominees that were not selected as the best picture so uh with that note i will let us uh move on and i uh, wish everybody a uh enjoyable rest of their uh, new year 2021 and we'll see you next time on cinema around the corner